This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And redevelopment plans for the Queen Vic market have been released and are going before Melbourne City Council tomorrow. And there's a lot going to change. Um, deliveries and parking will go underground. The organic section of the market near the deli will move. And there'll be high-rise housing on two sides of the market built to fund the development costs. And this isn't the first time the Vic market's been up for redevelopment. And uh, back in the 1970s, the ideas at the time failed and they didn't happen. Um, Dr Dave Nichols is an urban planning academic with Melbourne Uni and knows about the history of such things and I suppose have you had a look um, Dave at the redevelopment plans? I've had a look at the plans uh, such as they are Kalia yes um, and there's there's a lot of ideas in there the one thing that you um, you didn't get around to talking about was the the public square notion on top of the car park which I think is quite uh, quite an interesting element that's being put in there but as you say it's something that um, has been 40 years ago there was there was a lot of uh, talk about um, actually completely removing the market and it was partially removed because there was the wholesale part of it was moved out to Footscray and that has since been moved to Epping like very recently so the wholesale element is is long gone and that was the first stage in getting rid of the market I remember of course there were once well, at least three markets in central Melbourne two of which are you know long 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 gone and Victoria Market was kind of a the Victoria Market that we have now is kind of a rump of what was there initially and, uh, yeah, very different uh, uh, customer base, very different purpose. There's a lot of lot of different things that have happened in the last uh, 40, 50 years has really changed the way that the market, the role that the market serves in the city. And so what are, what are your thoughts on, on the plans? Does the market need renewing? I, I don't... I, I'm in two minds about it, uh, unfortunately. Sorry, I can't give you a... Andrew Bolt style. That's all, all we're about stop. on this show. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I actually think that, uh, as I say, the, the the role of the market has changed so much that um, you know, in a way, it is it is kind of a you know, it's a tourist attraction apart from anything else. And a lot of people, you know, there was once a, uh, I guess, a, a feeling that markets were great because they are cheaper. And uh, there's a kind of a payoff in terms of, you know, your your cleanliness and maybe even your convenience and so on, um, because you get stuff cheaper. And I mean, I don't think the Queen Victoria Market is really very cheap anymore. Maybe some of those suburban markets. I often go to Preston Market, which which I think has that still has that quality about it. But um, the the Queen Victoria Market is kind of a it's a certainly a Melbourne institution, but it is also a tourist attraction. It's also a kind of a, it's a bit of a lifestyley kind of place now so maybe in that sense it does have to um, be brought up to to date um, I don't think you know nobody's talking about demolishing any of the the bits and pieces that we you know know and love um, I like the public square idea and I also would say look at all that car parking I mean that's that's even as a car park it's it's not an efficient car park it's just a big bit of you know real estate with that people park their cars in, you know, some days of the week. Um, you know, we could probably do without that. I mean, probably we could probably bring in some initiatives that stop people feeling that they have to come and drive to the market in the morning and drive away, you know. Uh, you know, it's... Um, it's a bit wasteful, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, uh, I mean, uh, we can be critical of the market. There's lots that could improve, I'm sure, but mm. uh, it's interesting how how far the plans want to take us. So it's yeah. not just, um, you know, making a, a public square above the car park and undergrounding some of those deliveries, mm. which on the surface is, you know, dangerous as well as um, mm. taking up pedestrian space and the like but then how far do you go and i think this idea that uh you know high-rise developments around the market will fund the the development yeah. plans really complicates in some ways what otherwise could be just improvement and, and maintenance yeah no it, it does and you know i think that there's probably a point at which you know i don't think that the the small M, not the Queen Victoria market, but the small M market can sustain this kind of, you know, extensive uh, residential development in, in North Melbourne. North Melbourne, you know, doesn't need it. Uh, the city, in a way, doesn't need it. It's it's not a, it's not a great thing to have. Um, but uh, at the moment, I guess <clears throat> that's a way of, of bringing some, uh, some money into the area. Uh, yeah, personally, I think it's you know it's one of those it's one of those funny things. You know, I, I noticed that um, 
Richard Wynne, the planning minister, said last week that he had fond memories of the market. He went there, you know, since he was a child, he would go there with his mother, those those kinds of things. And, yeah, we all have a something vested in it. But, you know, it's a, it's a case of it's already changed. You know, the whole thing has changed. It's now... Um, it's a very different proposition from what it was even 20 years ago. And so... Uh, we can sort of bemoan incremental change or we can bemoan instant change, but either way, it's the change is, has already happened it's going to continue to happen. And, and Richard Wynne said that he has some concerns about the renewal plans yes. around the 30-storey the potential mm. high-rise to be, mm. as I understand it, where the Mercat Cross Hotel yes. is currently yes. and also around the proposed seven-day-a-week trading. Do you yeah. think that, I mean, those sorts of disagreements between the Melbourne City Council and the state government will hold up some of these plans and mean that we oh, don't probably. see much renewal in the, <laughs> yeah, in the I imagine future. So, and there's obviously a lot of people are very unhappy about it, and I can see a lot of traders that are unhappy about it, and a lot of people who identify as local people, uh, which I guess in the case of this kind of um, institution could mean, you know, I live in Melbourne, or it could mean I live in North Melbourne, or I live in West Melbourne. Uh, but local people are very unhappy about it, and uh, you can see why. And there are some there are some things in there that look, you know, people don't trust. Um, either local or state government necessarily. So they, they look at these kinds of ideas of like um, we're going to pull down a whole lot of the, the sheds, take them away, you know, take them away, label them presumably and in some warehouse and do all this work and then we'll bring them back and reassemble them, you know, just just as they were. You can sort of imagine how that looks dodgy if you're of a mind to be suspicious. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, straight away I, I start to think, well, what iconic... Uh, you know, landmark working market or equivalent mm. has been successfully redeveloped mm. in this way and hasn't been sanitised and is still, yeah. in the essence, uh, a wonderful place yeah. to go but has been maintained and improved. Like, are there examples of, of where governments have done this well elsewhere? Or? Oh, it's, you know, it's a core element of... Now I'm trying to remember the American city that was... Uh, notoriously uh, used a downtown market as like its, you know, its absolute central element for a, uh, a total renewal. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the, I can't remember what city it was, somewhere on the East Coast. But there's, you know, it can be, it can be done. Uh, I think in some instances it, it has been done uh, very successfully, once again, as a kind of a tourist thing. So if you're talking about sanitising it, and I, I know you're talking in a kind of a metaphoric sense, not in a, you know, san- sanitation is actually a good thing, but um, <laughs> sanitising it? it for, yeah, it already is. I mean, let's face it, it already is, and and it has been for a long time. So in that sense, uh, it's uh, too late to, to worry about that kind of stuff, I think. But, um, and why, and... And the city has changed. The city has changed totally in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. So, uh, you know, you, you have very, very few um, of the of the people who once would have come from North Melbourne or uh, to, to use it as a local uh, market area. There are some, but, you know, even they're, they're, most of them are, are different people, different kinds of people. Yeah, it's half past um, nine here on 3RRR and we're talking about the the proposed redevelopment of the Queen Vic market and how do these things roll, Dave? So the the development plans have been under development for... for um, some time, and yeah. and um, and the Lord Mayor is passionate about this project. I mean, he, he makes sure that we know about that yeah. as well. And so, it's going before council. It definitely needs the state government to be on, on board. board as yeah. well. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, there's timeframes in the redevelopment plan, like yeah. 2018 for yes. some bits, 2017. So that, 2021 that's pretty... is the is when it's all going to be like supposed to be all settled. So a lot can change between oh, now. Totally, and, then. and of course, you know, in many instances. Um, you know, if 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 the city, you know, if the city of Melbourne is going to be tactical, they will claim more than they think they can actually achieve, and then you know, um, the, let the negotiation start. But I th- it seems, although you never know with these kinds of things, but it looks like they've been taken by surprise a little bit by the state government's um, uh, reaction response. Uh, but you know, that, once again, that's not. It's it's difficult to see from this juncture exactly how they felt about that. Maybe there've been there's been problems bubbling under all along. Uh, there there are all kinds of things at play here that I don't think we necessarily see. But if you look at the, and I I 
advise, urge listeners to have a look at the original, um, the document that the the City of Melbourne put out um, about the redevelopment, which is, it's very interesting. I mean, you, you have to look at it with a, you have to look at it with a very cynical eye and, and realise that it is in many ways calculated to manipulate you in, in, in many ways. But uh, it is nevertheless uh, interesting. And as I say, you know, some of that stuff about um, public space, uh, that kind of... Um, that intrigues me. I mean, that, that kind of entices me. There are other things in there that um, I don't know if you, were, if you were wanted to talk about this, but, you know, the, the, the market is on the site of a cemetery, mm. was a cemetery. A lot of the, the graves and the tombstones were moved out to Faulkner in the beginning of last century. So it's, uh, but apparently there are a lot of bodies still in the ground. And they say things like, you know, no bodies will be disturbed, which is like, well, first of all, they're dead. But um, second of all, you know, who cares it anyway? But um, a lot of, I think a lot of people would care about that. What? Who? I don't know. I think I think <laughs> the idea that some people, some t- tombs, and some yeah. um, were removed and others weren't. Like I, I'm mm. not sure who was moved, but I imagine it's people that had money and families that they didn't were have interested marked in, graves. Yeah. yeah, the pioneers. Cem- this it's the pioneers cemetery at Faulkner, so it's the historically famous people. That, um, but you know, on the other hand, uh, if there are bodies in the ground there, like people who've been dead for 150 years or whatever, um, you know, people are parking their cars on top of them and walking, you know, buying fish above them. You know, I, does that is that a problem? I imagine there's there's a complicated process you need to go through if you're going to move bodies, though. So on one level, it might be kind of a, a practical thing that they're mm. they're avoiding doing that i mean as far as i understand from looking at the plans and and reading Mm. some of the reporting around it those bodies are buried under the proposed public square which is where the car park Mm. is now as i understand it underground car park yeah i don't i don't think it's going to be in in that spot that's that's kind of that's where i'm kind of um i'm a bit dubious about that perhaps it can go under under the under the bodies yeah and leave a level in between uh, look i That's don't know i'm absolutely idea. but you know what i mean talking can we about have a perspective perspect- so we can dave, see them um <laughs> dr dave nichols is with us he's with um with uh, melbourne university but what i mean bringing up the cemetery is important i think but also it speaks to how much that site has changed yes exactly over a long period of time mm. and my understanding is that the the deli and the organics sort of section where that is at the bottom there in the fish market that's the sort of oldest part mm. and the other bits mm. um are less are less yes, old it's kind of expanded out across the, the block there mm. Yeah, so yeah. the idea of, of change, like it's it's part of the, the, the market's history is, is change. Change is, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, the market, as you as you suggested before, and the market completely avoided uh, its sort of demise uh, 40 years ago when there, was, there were plans to build this amazing brutalist uh, office block called the Victoria Centre on that site. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, at that time... Oddly, just to just to speak to that change at that time, a lot of the rhetoric about saving the market was this is where working class people come to you know buy their cheap food, and you know, I think the last working class person seen at the Victoria Queen Victoria Market, I think that was about 1992. Um, uh, not the the sighting was not fully confirmed, but. Uh, <laughs> I should give out our phone number for people to <laughs> make sure that they chocolate. can have their say here. <laughs> but people can actually, you know, put forward their, their views. And there has been a consultation process. And, look, I, I go to the market and uh, have done my spot polling of my favourite mm. bread shop and my deli mm. section. And <laughs> I thought you were going to say the spot polling of the working class people. No. <laughs> no. Well, um, and I think that the... Um, the, the idea that people are on board with the changes, yeah, it's it, not everybody is, that's for sure. There oh, is totally. a lot of disharmony going on. Uh, absolutely. There's a lot of unhappiness. And there's a Facebook group, uh, Fen- Friends of the Queen Victoria Market, which is um, worth having a look at. That They raise a lot of uh, interesting issues about you know, the problems. And that you can see, I, I really think that one of the major issues there is that people don't trust either tier of government to do the right thing and that, uh, or probably particularly the, the City of Melbourne, to do the right thing, um, um, <clears throat> depending on what your definition of the right thing is. But um, it's just uh, the way that people regard these kinds of uh, glossy planning documents now. They just go, well, you know, that looks all very nice and I see you've given us this and you've given us this and you're saying this won't change and this won't change, but, you know, how do we really know what, you're gonna, what your plans are? Yeah, well, I mean, look, we'll be talking about this with you again, no doubt, at some point when we actually know what might happen, which might be another year or more away. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's uh, it's very, and I find it fascinating that these kinds of, uh, you know, these iconic places, they're iconic in, in various different ways, but they have to, uh, they do have to update. I mean, I'm, I'm not really in favour of, I'm not in any way in favour of, you know, high-rise residential in the city. I think that's that's rubbish. But I, but I think that, you know, place the the place is already already has this particular role, and you know Richard Wynn might have gone there with his mother, you know, however long ago, uh, fifty years ago. But um, it's almost as though he went to a different place entirely. Uh, it's just its location happens to be the same. Yeah, nostalgia, which is very potent. Mm. It is very potent. Thank you mm. so much, and we'll um, catch you back here in a month or. Six weeks or something, once you um, return from your sabbatical. <laughs> Fabulous. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And it is the grapevine this morning. And with such tight numbers in the Federal House of Reps and also in the Senate, there could be a chance for Nick Xenophon and Andrew Wilkie to get support for their anti-pokey platforms. But maybe not. It's really hard to see that there's an appetite on either side of politics and the major parties to reopen this issue. And uh, despite the obvious social harm resulting from pokies, uh, we're not hearing much about it at the moment. Um, we're, we've spoken to Charles Livingston before. He's uh, from the school of Public Health at Monash University. He's, he's joining us again. And um, you've been sort of writing on this topic, Charles, about whether there's much prospect for pokey reform. It seems to many people that it's well overdue. But um, are you holding out hopes? <laughs> well, we always have hope. I mean, you've got to remember that reform in this area, like many other areas, comes up against very powerful vested interests. So, for example, Woolworths, which uh, makes, well, people at Woolworths owned pokey venues make $1.1 billion a year or lose $1.1 billion a year. Um, you know, Woolies owns 12,000 or more poker machines around Australia. Um, and Clubs New South Wales, of course, which controls about 70% of the poker machines in New South Wales and makes about $4 billion a year out of it. So when you put those numbers up, you can see that we're up against some formidable foes. But um, on the other hand, uh, tobacco control seemed impossible some years ago, and yet we've now managed to get tobacco consumption down to record lows with consequent massive reductions in cancers and so on. So you've got to take a long view on these things, and one parliament can make progress, but it's probably not going to solve everything overnight. And I want to return to uh, Julie Gillard's prime, minister, prime, prime Ministership for a moment because, of course, uh, Pokey's reform was very much in the works and was the condition of uh, independent Andrew Wilkie supporting Julie Gillard's uh, Labor government in the hung parliament situation. But, of course, those uh, proposals were scuttled in the end. Have we, or can we learn anything from those days looking forward? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what scuttled those reforms was a massive campaign run by clubs New South Wales, but with the support of most of the gambling industry from Australia. The clubs spearheaded it because they seem to feel that they've got a good public profile and they sort of played that up for all it was worth. But in the end, their tactics weren't so much their public campaigning, but their capacity to intimidate politicians by a carrot and stick approach. So, you know, we now know that they were giving select politicians um, funding for their electoral re-election campaigns and so on at the same time as they were threatening other politicians with annihilation at the ballot box by mobilising club members to sort of cold rallies and draw attention to the policies and so on. So, you know, I mean, this, these tactics, in fact, are very similar to those utilised by lobby groups around the world, such as the NRA in America, and they've been very successful. But once you understand what they're up to and how they're doing it and the... Uh, let me call it the uh, the less than truthful approach they often adopt. Um, we can counter that more effectively. And I think Nick Xenophon the other night was suggesting that uh, a marginal seats campaign by people who want reform um, can also be effective. Now, you know, we're a long way from being able to do that, but I think come the next election we might find that groups like Get Up and others are mobilising to take this on as a big issue. And that, you know, it's a sort of the loss of a seat or um, the threat to a majority which gets the attention of politicians. And they often think that all the electoral funding in the world doesn't mean anything if you can't form government. And I've heard, uh, I've read reports overnight that in Victoria 
uh, spending on poker machines in particular are up around about $44.7 million on last year, and that's blown out to a total of about $2.6 billion. That's been reported yep. in The Age. Um, I mean, at the state level, is there anything that state governments can kind of do or are likely to do in that regard? Because, of course, they are responsible for, for some gambling regulations in states. Yeah, the states have responsibility for most gambling. I mean, the Commonwealth really only has clear responsibility in the constitutional sense for internet or interactive gambling, um, and they clearly have the capacity to regulate that, but that's another story. The states generally regulate all other forms of gambling, and some of them do it better than others. I mean, the Victorians and the South Australian governments have been reasonably progressive and have introduced a number of harm minimisation measures over a long period of time, and these have had some positive effects. There's no doubt about that. The problem with the Victorian data is that for the last two years, we've now seen real growth in poker machine losses, that is, after adjusting for inflation, which is um, a reversal of a trend over a long period of time. And we're also at the same time, interestingly enough, seeing a reduction in the proportion of the population who actually use poker machines. So what that suggests is that we're getting to a situation where not that many people, fewer than one in six Victorians, will use a poker machine at all during the course of the year. But that small proportion of the population are actually spending very significant amounts of money on it. And that suggests that what we've got is a hard core of people with a serious addiction who are providing most of the money to the gambling organisations that are operating you know, pokies in clubs and pubs and indeed at the casino. So, you know, I mean, this is a new dimension of a continuing problem and that's where state governments need to start thinking about new solutions, new harm minimisation solutions that will enable people firstly to get off, get off the machines, if you like, but also to stop them being so addictive in the first place. I mean, the real problem with pokies, the reason why they're such a big problem is that they are incredibly effective addiction machines. They've been designed and perfected over a really long period of time uh, to provide you know, almost a perfect addiction machine. They operate exactly the same way that cocaine operates in your brain, releases dopamine and makes you feel good. And, and again, those uh, people where, or areas that, where people are spending large amounts of money on poker machines tends to be lower socioeconomic disadvantaged areas around the state. Yeah, that's largely true. I mean, it's better, though, to think of it in terms of stress. I mean, if you think about people that live in outer suburban areas with new housing estates and so on, strictly speaking, they're not wildly disadvantaged. They might be two-income families, they might be earning good money, but mm. they have a lot of stresses associated with their lifestyle. So often they're travelling long distances every day. They've got lots of outgoings, they've got mortgages, cars, etc., to run. So people in those circumstances are living in a certain stressful way, just as people in you know, areas of disadvantage and poverty are living under stress. So, and that's why poker machine operators tend to locate their machines in such places, because they know that people under stress are going to seek relief from that stress. And unfortunately, um, you know, this is quite predatory in my opinion, but what this means is that people that are under stress are much more likely to use machines and if they use them, they're much more likely to become addicted to them because they find that they provide a relief from stress just as alcohol does or drug taking does for some other people. Uh, Charles Livingston's with us from Monash Union. We're talking about the prospects for gambling reform in this uh, next federal parliament and um, sort of speaking about whether, you know, a lot of that responsibility for re reform sits at the state government level, in fact. And I wonder whether things like pre-commitment requirements, this is where, you know, as a user of machines, you sort of set a, a limit for how much you're going to spend at a given sitting. And I wonder, are there any prospects for any of these kinds of changes um, Bring, being brought in, Charles? Well, in Victoria now, all the machines are required to have a voluntary pre-commitment system. Unfortunately, the take-up for that has been very, very modest. I understand minute, in fact. But um, what that means, though, is that the architecture, the technology is in place to turn that from a voluntary system into one which everyone uses. Um, and that, you know, that's a big call for a government to introduce. But there's evidence from around the world now, growing evidence, that it does actually help people who want to manage their gambling to actually do so. And above all, it also helps provide a foolproof self-exclusion scheme. At the moment, if you feel you've got a problem with gambling and in a lucid moment decide you want to ban yourself from the venues, you have to fill in a form 
provide them with a passport photograph and then hope that they spot you when that you walk into a crowded venue. And, you know, more often than not, they don't. So there's no really effective um, self-exclusion system at the moment, although the industry trumpets it. Um, a, a card system would, would actually allow that to be much more effective. The other thing I think that's important to remember, though, is although the states at the moment have primary responsibility for the regulation of gambling, there is no doubt that the Commonwealth could regulate it if it chose. And the Gillard government's uh, draft legislation drew on its uh, powers under the Corporations Act to uh, legislate for the regulation of poker machines across the country. Now, you know, curiously enough, that um, power was demonstrated when a couple of the states took the Howard government to court over the work choices legislation um, and uh, the High Court found that the Commonwealth could make laws about things that it wasn't expressly entitled to under the Constitution. But uh, there's no doubt that the Commonwealth could if it wanted to regulate poker machine gambling and of course Wilkie, Xenophon um, and other uh, people in the, in the Parliament who are concerned about this would very much like to see the Commonwealth step up given that the states generally lag quite a lot particularly yeah, because that's where the, be said. the revenue is Sorry. going and I wonder with um, yep. Mal- with Malcolm Turnbull my understanding is he's not a fan of pokies and no. but I, has he made any sort of sounds about putting that on the agenda for the next period of time well you know when he was uh, when he was uh, when he was uh, not leader of the opposition and or prime minister he I'm told by Tim Costello that he articulated a quite a strong opposition to poker machines and felt that it was proper for the Commonwealth to actually take action on them. So, unfortunately, with Mr Turnbull, it's hard to know where his private opinions and his public opinions differ. There's (laughs) evidence that he believes in a lot of things, but he's not prepared to push them very hard through his party at this point in time. So, unfortunately, I think this is one of them. But... Look, there are plenty of Liberal Party members and parliamentarians who think that poker machines need to be better regulated at all levels in the Parliament. Uh, and there's plenty of uh, Labor Party people too, and certainly we know that the Greens and many other members of the minor parties or independents support regulation. And more than 70% of the Australian population support regulation. So, I mean, what we're really up against is the sort of the classic problem of our times, which is powerful vested interests with lots of money and lots of access to politicians who don't want things to change because they're on easy street. And, you know, this is a big problem for reform in a whole lot of areas. And so we'll no doubt hear more about potential poker machine reform in the new parliament, but what about other forms of gambling? I mean, TV advertisements, for example, uh, advertising gambling during sports is something that's been uh, talked about as being particularly problematic. Are we likely to see anything in that regard, do you think? Any change? Well, I mean, you know, if you ask me which is the most likely reform over the next two to three years, I would say a reform of the advertising of uh, gambling's you know, bookies and uh, online bookies in particular um, during sporting broadcasts. I mean, there is, it's a loophole at the moment. The, uh, the industry is regulated by um, a self-regulatory code of conduct and uh, that, you know, they can alter that any time they want and that prohibits advertising, uh, gambling and alcohol before seven in the evening unless it's a sporting broadcast. So that's the loophole. Now, of course, it's an absurdity. There's no particular reason why you would think that it was all right to show kids gambling ads during a football game, but not to show them at other, you know, during other programming. And, you know, 90% of the population in Australia, we know, think that there's far too much of this and that it should stop. So, you know, and the, the, the politicians, I would have thought, would uh, understand this sentiment and want to act on it. The problem here, of course, is that the TV broadcasters who are struggling to make any money at the moment and the sporting codes have become very reliant on this stream of gambling, which I understand is worth about $120 million a year to them. So, you know, I mean, in order to introduce that, we might want to think about something like a Vic Health-style levy on gambling ads to help the sporting codes out and perhaps even to reduce the licence fees for those broadcasters that are not um, actually uh, broadcasting... uh, these advertisements during that time but you know there's ways around all of this stuff without innocent parties getting getting whacked by it and um i think 
you know, seriously, I do think that's probably the number one priority in terms of getting a reform through, which is feasible and which I think most people would support wholeheartedly. And as you say, there's precedent there with regards to tobacco, which was also a major supporter of uh, sporting codes and, and, and the like uh, over the that's years. That's right. Yep. That's right. I mean, when tobacco sponsorship was withdrawn from advertising, uh, the, uh, the the sports and the TV and everyone else said that the end of the world would come. Well, you know, big surprise, it didn't. And all of the commercial uh, broadcasters and all of the sporting codes have thrived ever since then. I mean, you know, in more recent times, the internet has uh, troubled the broadcasters. But, you know, there was no evidence at all that they lost anything much uh, when tobacco pulled out of the uh, the sponsorship stakes. And I think a similar situation would prevail with gambling. Thanks so much for um, joining us, Charles, and it'll be great to talk to you again in the future. You're very welcome. Take Thanks, care. And, and get well soon. <laughs> Bye. Uh, Bye. Um, Charles Livingston there, um, nursing a cold, um, talking to us uh, about uh, the prospects of gambling reform over the, this period of the federal government, and uh, he's from Monash University's um, Department of Preventative Health. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. On the grapevine, Triple R, that is Dan Kelly, drunk on election night from his 2006 release, Drowning in the Fountain of Youth. And Dan's um, set to perform that album in its entirety and play some other songs from his back catalogue this Saturday, July 30th at Howler. And um, he's been very busy touring his most recent album, Leisure Panic, as well as playing with a bunch of other good folk, including Ben Salter and Alex Gow in various cities around Australia and further abroad. But we're very happy to have him here in the studio along with Aaron Cuffles. Thanks for stopping by thank you yes aaron is from the alpha males Mm -hmm. um so that's what we're doing we're reforming the dan kelly and the alpha males getting the band back together (laughs) yeah to do that record and you've come a long way for that all the way from the uk i've come from tottenham london wow to um yeah did you bring your hot spurs (laughs) i just brought my guitar okay that's fine i wanted to play um drunk on election night from that album because we've just had an election here of course in australia and i wonder if you had the same kind of sentiment around the time of this year's federal election um i probably had less invested i just i I mean i just remember being when i wrote that that was pretty john howard specific that song Mm. and i just remember i'd been traveling and come back to australia and it's like the nationals were back in in queensland which was a real shock as a, I grew up in Queensland, and it was once, once they were gone, I thought, oh, they'll never get back in. And John, ha- the elections had been almost like the same week, and John Howard was back in in Australia. And I remember just being incredibly depressed about it. Mm. And so I went with a friend to Stradbroke Island, which is just off Brisbane, and uh, we took ecstasy and went boogie boarding. And I came out of the water, and I had that, like, that chorus just in my head, which is like, you know, like a nice ecstatic kind of sweary <laughs> feeling <laughs> so i just sort of turned it into that song um but this time yeah i just i mean i voted and stuff and um but i kind of figured what was going to happen was what was going to happen more resigned to the yeah. fact i mean it's a resigned song anyway it's kind of a bit more about apathy because mm. um, i'm not very good at like didactic kind of full-on uh you know political do this or do that stuff i kind of like writing songs that sort of say i don't know what, what the, do I the do? Russell Brand approach. Help me, Mum. Don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, off in the UK, they've had a, a massive kind of political upheaval of of their own, of course, haven't they? Yeah, it's a it's a whole other circus over there. Mm. But yeah, so I'm so I've. I've Taken Dan Kelly's advice and got out to Australia. <laughs> so you, 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 so you haven't had the the experience of living under a new PM yet. You've been out here. Uh, she was just. Um, yeah, just as I left, she was um, sort of take, taking on the torch, yeah. All the other contenders dropped out and she was just by default the new leader. But. And so um, so you're set to perform uh, Drowning in the Fountain of Youth in its entirety this Saturday night as well as some other songs from your, your back catalogue, I understand. Is it an album that you've revisited much at all over the past 10 years or did you kind of do the recording and, and sort of let it lie and, and do that tour off the back? Um. It's uh, there's certain songs off that that I've continued to do as part of my sort of uh, set, but um, the album in its entirety is something that I don't think we've ever done. It was such a specific um, 
sort of time and set of factors that kind of made that album come together mm. and uh, certainly it had a lot to do with Aaron's production because he we started it uh, with Andy um, Andy yeah Andy Baldwin Andy Baldwin and then ran, <coughs> ran out of money really quickly <laughs> I, I was very excited because it was the first album I'd ever been involved in where I wasn't re- doing the recording I was actually just being a musician <laughs> right it lasted two weeks <laughs> and then the panicked phone call and it was like help me Aaron and so, you know, so then we all decamped to a house down in Woolamai yeah Dan, Dan Luscombe's parents house yeah one mm. baggy and uh, and sort of worked on it there and then it wasn't quite right, so then we ended up making an EP in Gippsland out of some that's of the bones right. of it, yep. putting that out, and that's where that song kind of came out on. Mm. And then we sort of went back and did more stuff and overdubbed here and there. And We ended up at my parents' house in the barn. Yeah, in uh, Thorpedale yep. uh, in Gippsland. So the two of us, just like for three months in this freezing cold barn filled with white-tailed spiders, just kind of painting. <laughs> it was a real age of Pro Tools kind of. Though we didn't do it on Pro Tools with that kind of style. We did it on yeah. New Endo, but... You know, it was like manga, like just so many little parts and bits mm. and pieces and taking them out and seeing what worked. And then, you know, and the band, other band members have come down and add bits and, you know. And then to do that live, this is the, that's the long answer, was we, we sort of did a bit more like just a sort of rock and roll band, I think, without f- filling in all the mm. details. Because you could, the electronic kind of stuff at your disposal now for sampling wasn't as easy, I remember. Yeah, like, no one. Yeah, taking a computer on stage was a... Uh, Very fraught. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're giving you some weird looks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but now, you know, we added a bit more texture, mm. um, just because, you know, like, uh, got different little technological bits. And uh, we've got Amanda and May Lees, who are the ukuleles, um, are going to come in and do some of the backing vocals that they originally sung, which would be great. And we've never sort of done that before. I t- I've taught just playing with the ukuleles myself, but... Never had them in the band, so yeah, we're going to try and make it like it's it's like a musical almost. That record is mm. meant to be a musical about my just inability to get myself together, and you know, up, general uptightness at the end of the world and plastic surgery and Catholic schoolgirls lost on a on a ship. It was it's a long story. There's a lot going on in that <laughs> in that album, and it's yeah. yeah. Um, so we want to present it a bit more like that. So I was kind of looking forward to it. We're going to spend we're just spending a week in the studio. We've got a little rehearsal studio just figuring out how we're going to do it. Well, you do some storytelling around the songs as well or when you're playing them? I haven't worked that out yet because my general sort of uh, style now is just to talk (laughs) more than I play. Like my songs have sort of become a punchline to the story that leads (laughs) up to the song. But it will just depend on... I don't know. It's sort of different when you've got seven people on stage. Like you kind of just want to play the songs. Um, There's a few songs I definitely need explaining... Um, just because it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> which which ones in particular? Oh, like the, the song "The Lonely Coco- The Lonely Coconut." Like the, like the whole concept of the record was I got the idea of this coconut. You know how coconuts like they drop off the tree and then they roll into the ocean and they go on these incredible journeys mm. and they find themselves on a beach thousands of kilometres away and then they establish a new coconut colony. And somehow I sort of combined that concept with Dan Luscombe, who was in the band, who was having a bit of a hard time. Uh, and he so he ended up walking a lot, like he just had had a relationship break up, and and so he did a lot of walking while we were recording, and I could just see him in the horizon of Woolamai just walking around and around in this brown leather jacket, sort of rubbing his forehead, and I sort of pictured him then cutting a hole into the earth with his paces and and coming up in Spain, um, and so somehow I combined those two concepts, and also the idea that Dan Luscombe and I, a lot of people think that we're the same person. Really? Inexplicably. Well, I mean, we spent a lot of time. We've got a lot of similar mm. similar things that we've done. Mm. But it's incredible. Like, I'll be travelling across Australia and, like, Brad Shepard from the Hoodoo Gurus will just run up and give me a big hug. And I'll be like, dude. <laughs> I'm not that <laughs> never guy. never met you before. <laughs> you know, that happens Stop all the time. hugging me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so you know that's a sort of that's a sort of an idea that needs explaining because mm. otherwise it's just like what is he on about? Yeah. You know, it's this kind of tropical song about a guy walking through the earth. Um, I mean, and, and it's kind of fun, and it makes more sense when you kind of hear that, um, hear those sort of things. So I'll talk a bit. Yeah, it makes but more we sense got, to me now, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never, never told you. <laughs> never heard that one before. 
But you seem to get um, inspiration from really interesting places, whether it's um, having ecstasy and going bo- boogie boarding or... Um, Which you don't know, do that at home, kids, by the way. Yeah. Like do it at the beach. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it this guy on the radio says... <laughs> Um, uh, and you know, and from that story, and even the, the idea of um, the song "Baby Bonus" on on your most recent album, for example, I heard you kind of came up with that idea from being in in Nimbin and running into a friend, and and then subsequently adopting the persona of a of a kind of hippie woman and writing the song from that perspective. Do these things just kind of come to you, or do you sort of sit down and and think, "I'm going to write a song. What's crossed my mind lately, and and I'm I'm going to do it." Uh, yeah, it's like I have to go out and do stuff like that. And and uh, I can't just sort of make it up. I mean, not, I don't become a hippie woman, but yeah, it's I'll have little experiences and then I'll turn them into this kind of meta fantasy mm. about my life, and also try and tell some kind of sort of tale or have some kind of story in there that's not that's sort of a bit hidden. It's a complicated way of songwriting. Um, yeah, poor Aaron's had to, to, to wrangle <laughs> yeah. ten years of just trying to figure out my, my brain and <laughs> turn it into sound. Yeah, um, but. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's just my sort of my life. It's kind of, I'm leaving little trails, but this is the thing: it's the it's my life, but it's also the people that I've collaborated with. And this was such a strong collaboration. This record, you know what I mean? It's sort of like um, it really because it very much affects the way. I mean, it just would have been a very different record if I hadn't. So the way that I work with Aaron in the studio, we work. We just he's very easy to work with, but we have a sort of an unspoken language, and then. That influences the songwriting, or sometimes you'd throw in some chords too. And it was the same with the alpha males because I had so many people in the band who were so good, you know, at, at just at played in other bands and j- just knew about songwriting in general. So that it um it's a real collaboration, even though I'm kind of at the at the head, mm. I suppose, by putting my name there. Um, but I love to be able to then go back and listen now and then, or do something like this and think. How did how did I come up with that sound? Was it you know, was it the ukuleles rehearsing next door because we had this kind of com- commune in Richmond, mm. the, playing the little ukulele songs, or was it like playing in a band with Dan Luscombe as well, like in Paul, Paul Kelly's band and listening to his kind of weird Hawaiian tropical guitar, or was it sort of going going and seeing things like Square Push or Sonic Youth with Aaron and getting into this kind of clangy, clean tone, electronic thing? It's, it's I can sort of see all my friends. And hear it all in the music, you know, and it's something we've sort of wrangled into a big kind of mind vomit. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long sentence. <laughs> Hi, Mum. <Full> stop. <laughs> and how does it how does it work for you, Aaron? I mean, being based in in the UK now for the last, um, I think nine nine years. Yeah, it's coming up to nine years. Yeah. Do you still kind of keep pretty sort of close contact with with people like Dan and, and collaborate from yeah, across well, distances? A lot of my work is still Australians getting in, getting in touch and posting me things or you know we have the internet now so it's sort of and i tend to come back every year for a stretch and so yeah a lot of, there's still a lot of contact and i still i worked with dan on his last album um a bit um he the did drones he oh, did the bloody drones did the bloody last drones record here mm. um a bit over a year ago which has just come out this year um and so yeah there's still plenty of reason to come back and keep in touch with what's going on here because mm. yeah. we're geniuses because you're geniuses and you know who i am it was sad <laughs> it was very sad when when aaron left that was my kind of he was i felt like he was my key for something i was hoping and I was an Mick. album about me that didn't happen oh it will <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna produce it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. this is when you left me yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but it's good i mean i've managed to get over to london a fair bit and you know, we've, we do songwriting together, you know, or just put ideas together. Like a lot of the, uh, the last album, Leisure Panic, was Aaron and I sitting in a room during the London riots, That's just right. throwing ideas together. So you can actually, mm. on one of the tracks, I think, Expandito, you can hear a bit of a Sirens, siren. Right, police going Because it's like right on Kingsland Road. Mm. Well, and there was just, you know, it's a noisy road anyway. It but, was, yeah. But there was smoke and helicopters and it was very exciting. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, our, my particular area was defended by the Turkish community who came out with their kebab skewers and just defended defended the streets. Wow. And everyone. So everyone went out and ate Turkish for a week after that. Fantastic. <laughs> That's great. That was a great story. Yeah. Is um, it sort of hard to get everybody together, Dan, to sort of pull the band back together? Because how many are people coming from all over? Or is, are you the main traveller? Um, Aaron is the main traveller. But traveler. everyone's quite busy. I say... Um, 
and like Dan Lusson's got the drone, so it was really lucky. And Chriso, so um, both those guys, it was really lucky that because they were maybe going to be in Europe, but I, I don't think they're going quite yet. So that was really good because we're doing it exactly almost the tenth anniversary to the week or something. So mm-hmm. I just threw the idea out there a few months ago, and everyone's like, mm, maybe. And Aaron's like, I've got because you had Brexit and all well, that other that, stuff. That's a Breakfast, Brex, and, Brexit, and Aaron's band. <laughs> Aaron's band, Civic Civic, is doing a lot of touring in Europe. Um, Lewis has got this fantastic guitar shop uh, called Found Sound, which is uh, in Carlton. But he, you know, he, that's a kind of like an eighteen-hour job, da- a, 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 a also day got job. A baby you know. daughter as well. Yeah, and um, so everyone's quite busy. Um, Amanda's flying down from Newcastle. Um, but it sort of worked, and mm-hmm. that was a really good thing. We had to kind of get Aaron on board. At one point, we were working on the idea of a Skype guitar <laughs> performance <laughs> projector wow. behind the band, but I reckon that would have been pretty dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Better to have you in the Might flesh. have been amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and um, is it nostalgic at all revisiting this album sort of 10 years on, given, I don't know, where you were at, at your career in that time? Because it was this album, wasn't it, Drunken Election Night, that Neil Young kind of picked up, pub, picked up and said that he loved that track and included it in his website. Was it a really kind of exciting time for you when this album came out? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was just really good because we'd sort of... Um, like the band, the, the alpha males before it sort of disintegrated, not in a dramatic way, but so Gaz from the Drones had moved on, Tom from the Devastations had gone to Europe, um, Steve Heskis had joined Jet, and so then, so, like, so Aaron came in, you know, he was this mysterious figure from Gippsland at the time that all my flatmates used to tell me about, all the girls, they're like, oh, Aaron, he's the best musician we've ever met. And I'd be like, I hate this guy. He's the only musician in Gippsland. <laughs> the only musician in Gippsland. And he was like a drum and bass DJ. And so, so he came in to do guitar and then Chris O stayed uh, on drums and then Dan, we got Dan Luscombe and I met Lewis in a cab when we were really mashed and he was like oh play bass in your band and I was like can you play bass no but somehow that he, he, he was hired and um, and so then that all came together and we got a sound and um, and the album was really well received you know it sold not a huge amount of copies but a lot more than you'd sell today <laughs> for the same amount for the same quality, the same yeah. quality of record yeah <laughs> you know because 10 years ago people bought CDs and stuff. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, so, yeah, it was exciting. Um, and then then Aaron left. Then mm, that happened. That was it. We don't talk my, about that. My career <laughs> just spiraled. How, how much is your time? <laughs> <You're long break. laughs> how much of your time do you spend touring now, Dan? Oh, well, it sort of depends. I've just done a huge amount of solo touring. I just got back from New Zealand last night. I had a fantastic time. Your photos look amazing on um, on your Facebook. Page. It was mental. Like it was with Ben Salter and he planned it. And on one hand, on one, like on paper, it looks like he planned it really badly because we just drove back and forth over the South Island for a week. But that was just the shows he could get. But when we did it, it was just like the driving was just magnificent, mm. and we just some of those passes are just extraordinary. It's incredible, and we got to go over all of them yeah. <laughs> repeatedly <laughs> at the time. Um, so it's just after a week, it's had like we'd been on this incredible kind of Lord of the Rings holiday, but playing in these little halls to like really lovely people, like Barrytown Hall on the west coast. Just a um, just a hall almost in the middle of nowhere, a tiny town, just this raging kind of Tasman, grey Tasman Sea, just. You know, hitting the beach, and and but they put on shows there. Like Fagazi played there, and Towns yeah. Van Zandt, and we played on a Tuesday night in a rainstorm, and just like thirty locals, just sort of there was no one there for hours, not even the people who ran it. And we've just set up, the, we found a PA and set it up, and put on these big jet heaters, and we just like, and then thirty locals <laughs> turned up and started making us food and wine, and sat around and we played, and it was really great. Mm. And yeah, the scenery was mental. Like the South Island, I'd never been over into the the Alpine and the, and the West and it was just so great Yeah, and the people love New Zealanders it's, it's crazy yeah. diverse too like I went there for the first time in January and bit, went on a cycling tour with my family and we went through central Otago and it's the driest place I've ever been in my life so you know all the, the pictures you see of the South Island New Zealand is sort of lush and green and ferns yeah. and all that but the other side of the mountains is a completely different world and it blew me away it's extraordinary place yeah and 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 it's kind of compact so you can do it you know over a few hours you i was you know over a fair bit of driving you see an incredible amount Mm. it's very alive 
place. It feels like it's still kind of emerging from the earth. Um, so that was good. I don't know. What, I can't remember what the question was. Though. <laughs> oh, about <laughs> t- touring time, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been so I've been fairly busy doing that, which is good. I mean, you kind of got to play, otherwise it's, you're just not sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> Which I do a fair bit of too. <laughs> well, is this show on on Saturday your last for for a little while, or have you got some others in the works? I think that'll be it for me for for a while um, till I guess you know get some new songs together. Mm. I want to bring the the dream band, my other band, oh. out though, and go and you know play with them because it's fun. But I think I'll be I'll be doing a bunch of Paul Kelly stuff for a couple of months, mm. going to Ireland to play some stuff for the Dublin Festival. So that's kind of it. This is our, mm. this is it. Then the, the 20th anniversary of the album. That's right. We'll See you have, back here. We'll have like leather vests and goatees. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and sort of do more bluesy versions Get of the, the songs. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Aaron? Are you, um, are you sort of just doing this show and, and jetting back off to the UK? Yeah. I've, yeah, I've got to go back over there. I've got my own band and Civil Civic and we've got an album coming out. So it's European touring and doing the whole, you know, what you do when you've got an album coming out. Mm. Just tour like mad and tell everyone about it. Exciting times. On radio. Yeah. <laughs> does, it come out in, does, does it come out in Australia? Oh, it sure does, Dan Kelly. Yeah. What's a, what label is it coming out? It's on Believe Digital. All oh, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When can people get a copy? Uh, late October 24th, I think. Great. I should know that. On the, on the internet? Interweb? Yeah, no, and, and all... all Awkward, modern awkward formats. Re- record stores. Yeah, awkward <laughs> record stores. <laughs> um, yeah. Will you be coming over here? Uh, not this year, um, unfortunately, but as soon as we can, yeah. Look forward to it. Yeah, thanks. Well, we've been uh, chatting with Dan Kelly and one other member of the Alpha Males, um, Aaron Couples, talking all about the 10-year anniversary of Drowning in the Fountain of Youth show coming up this Saturday, July 30th at Howler. There's still some tickets available and some great support you've got on the night as well, Dan. Oh, yeah. So we've got Loose Tooth and Jade Imagine, who are just both fantastic mm. and uh, good sort of good friends of ours. Great. And it's great to have these kind of two really powerful sort of sort of women's bands to balance out the <laughs> alpha maleness. So the night's a bit more yin and yang. Yeah. Um, so we're looking forward to that. Not many tickets left. I reckon about twenty-two as the latest count. So if you want, if you want to come, I'd probably get onto it. Quickly. Get on the internet. Is that going to be? Is going to raise you enough money to get Aaron back home? Yeah, we figured it out. Yeah, so, so I've been told. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. It's enough money for us all to go and have dinner. Great. on Sunday, and then send Aaron home. Well, snap up those um, those <laughs> remaining tickets and make sure that Aaron can get home after this show on Saturday night. Um, thanks so much for coming in, and um, yeah, I hope to catch you down there on Saturday. Thank Great. you. Thanks for having us. Catch you later. Thank you. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.